Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. You know, somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of all marriages end in divorce. I would bet that very few people on their wedding day would estimate that their odds of divorce are 40 percent. And furthermore, I would bet that people who actually tell you their odds of divorce are 40 percent on their wedding day, these are not people who are about to have a very happy marriage. All of us in our personal lives benefit from some degree of self-deception. In the course of our evolutionary history, nature has realized that one of the things you want to do in, in order to engage parents in the, in the act of parenthood and to allow children to be raised successfully is to give parents delusional beliefs about their children. So the beliefs might not be real, but they're extraordinarily functional. I'm Sarah Fenske. It's one of those ideas that seems beyond argument in this modern age. Truth is good, delusions are bad. But Shankar Vedantam is not content to let the idea stand without scrutiny. His new book, in fact, is a defense of the power of self-deception, of the stories we tell ourselves, of the lies that make life livable. The book is called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. And joining us today is its author, Shankar Vedantam. He's best known as the host and executive editor of the Hidden Brain podcast. So, Shankar, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm really delighted to be here. So, Shankar, there's a true and very interesting story that starts your book, and it's woven throughout it, and that's the story of the Church of Love. For those who don't remember this bizarre business, I guess I'm going to call it, based in Moline, Illinois, what exactly was it? Yeah, it, it really was a bizarre business, uh, Sarah. So, in the 70s and 80s, a balding, middle-aged man in a small uh, Midwestern town uh, came up with this bizarre scheme, a, a con, really. Uh, he invented various characters, uh, young women whom he called angels, and then he wrote love letters in their voices to thousands of men across the United States. The men were said to be part of a group that was called the Church of Love. And in exchange for receiving the love letters, the men sent in donations, uh, which were called love offerings to, the, to their angels. Uh, some of the men thought they were playing a game and it was a fantasy and they enjoyed it as a game. Others believed they were corresponding with real women and fell in love with their correspondence. And some eventually believed that they had married the people they were writing letters to. The most remarkable part of the whole story is that when Don Lowry, uh, the con man was was brought to trial on charges of mail fraud. Several members of his church of love showed up at a courtroom in order to defend him. Hmm. Uh, and I found this absolutely astonishing that once the con was revealed, why would the marks show up to defend the con man? And in many ways, that was the starting point for this book and its exploration of the nature of self-deception. Hmm. So you did talk to Donald Lowry, the con man behind this whole church, but he's not the heart of the book. The heart of the book is this man named Joseph Henriquez. Tell us about him. 
Yeah, so Joseph Enriquez was uh, a man who was one of the members of the Church of Love. And when I first heard a story, I, I had the, the conclusion that I think many people have when they hear the story of saying, you know, the people who fell for the scorn must have been, you know, pathetic uh, losers and, uh, you know, really gullible people. Um, and they were fools. And the fact that they defended Donald Lowry as, as Joseph Enriquez did when, when Lowry was brought to trial, it just shows that they, were, that they were fools, that they were idiots. The more I got to know Joseph Enriquez, the more I came to understand that this was a shallow understanding of his life and circumstances. Uh, the letters, uh, the love letters first started arriving at an extremely low point in Joseph's life. Mm. And eventually, uh, they became something of a lifeline to him. Um, at, at Donald Lowry's trial, several members of the Church of Love reported that the love letters had kept them from alcoholism, from addictions. Uh, a couple of people said the love letters had saved them from suicide. Um, and in some ways, that was true for Joseph as well, that his life was really going downhill. The letters, even though they were fake and they came from, from women who did not exist, they ended up being an extraordinarily important part of his life to the point at which, even after the con was revealed for what it was, Joseph decided he wished to continue to believe. Hmm. I want to mention one thing about Joseph's belief here. A lot of newspaper accounts from that time, when they write about the Church of Love, they really stress the sexy nature, the idea that this was nude pics being sent, that this was kind of this, this almost creepy thing. You have a different view, at least as it relates to Joseph. Uh, what do you think this did for him? This wasn't about him getting to look at, at how the, these, these beautiful women... Yeah, so it's interesting because I think the media's coverage of the Church of Love story did focus on the salacious elements of the con because in some ways that's what was most salient. Mm -hmm. But Donald Lowry actually discovered early on that the members who were signing up because they wanted, you know, nude pictures or things that were overtly sexual, these were people who are not what you would call loyal customers. They didn't stick around for a long time. The people who were the most loyal customers, the people who were the most loyal members, people like Joseph Enriquez, were staying because, in fact, they had formed deep emotional bonds with the people to whom they were corresponding or people whom they believed were corresponding with them. And many of the letters that Joseph received, in fact, were not of a sexual nature at all. In mm. fact, the, the women who was, who was writing to him, uh, this woman who was named Pamela, uh, was writing to him about her everyday, you know, things that happened to her in her daily life. It was almost like pillow talk. Um, and Joseph eventually came to, to, to enjoy this in the way that I think many people come to enjoy sort of ordinary conversations in their intimate personal relationships, not because those conversations are dramatic or revelatory in some ways, but because they in some ways give you a window into someone else's mind and heart. Um, and so over the course of time, when you, when you read these letters, and I remember reading these letters myself because Joseph shared the letters, he's preserved these letters, so he shared the letters with me. I remember reading the letters myself and saying, you know, if I receive these letters over and over again over a course of many days, there's a chance that I might get to think that this person actually was a real person. Hmm. There was something deeply compelling about the letters in terms of the, the almost the, 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 the very ordinariness of, of, what, of their content. It really did feel like you had a friend or a, or a pen pal who was corresponding with you. And you also came to the conclusion, part of it for Joseph, was that, that he wanted to be needed. He almost wanted to be the knight in shining armor here for this woman, mm -hmm. this, this fictitious woman. 
Yeah, and I think this is something that I think a lot of us forget, that I think in, in many personal relationships, the thing that many of us are looking for is, in fact, the, that we are wanted, that we're needed by someone. And, and to the extent that we can see, see ourselves as being of purpose, of value to other people, this actually enhances our emotional bonds with other people. Uh, one, of the sure, one of the surest ways, in some ways, to build connections with other people, if you want someone to build a connection with you, is to let them know how much you need them, how much you want them, how much they, how much they mean to you. And in some ways, Don Lowry, who was a very clever charlatan and con man, realized that if the letters to the members communicated to the members how valuable they were in the lives of the angels, how much the angels looked up to them, uh, these young women, how much they looked up to them and needed them, they, he would likely have you know, customers who basically stayed with him for a very long time. So at one level, it was deeply nefarious. At another level, it showed a deep understanding of human nature. Well, it's such an amazing story. And, and just the reporting you did on this, it was so interesting to learn about both con man and victim. But how does this end up relating to the thesis of your book, These, this idea that delusions are a good thing? I mean, this is a con. As you say, there's something a little mm -hmm. nefarious about Donald Lowry ending up with all these sports cars because he's tricked this kind of sad sack guy living in Texas. That's right. So I think this is the this is the dilemma and the paradox and the subtitle of my book, as you read at the top of the of the conversation, is the power and paradox of self-deception. Because I think when we look around at our lives, we certainly see lots of examples in our personal lives, in our communities, in our national lives, where self-deception can produce tremendous harm. And I'm not for a second suggesting that it does not do those things. It absolutely does. And delusions and self-deceptions can be deeply harmful and deeply destructive. The problem is self-deception can also be functional. And I think this is what I came to realize as I was reporting the book. It's one thing to say self-deception does harm, but that doesn't mean that all self-deceptions do harm. When you think about the role of self-deceptions in our personal lives, in our personal relationships, it's easy to dismiss the relationship that Joseph had as fictional and to say that's pathetic that he fell in love with a woman whom he had never met and never spoken to. That, that's a ridiculous thing to do. But it turns out that at least to a lesser extent, all of us in our personal lives benefit from some degree of self-deception. A variety of psychological studies, for example, show that if you believe that you are romantically entangled with somebody who is truly beautiful and truly intelligent and truly empathetic, even if those things are not true, you end up being in a happier relationship if you believe them to be true. You know, Sarah, if you and I could take a road trip this coming year and we went to every couple getting married in the United States and we asked couples on their wedding day what the odds are that they would get divorced. Um, if they were being rational and logical, they would tell you that the average odds of getting divorced when you get married is about you know, somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of all marriages end in divorce. I would bet that very few people on their wedding day would estimate that their odds of divorce are 40 percent. And furthermore, I would bet that people who actually tell you their odds of divorce are 40% on their wedding day. These are not people who are about to have a very happy marriage. <laughs> so we almost need this delusion for something um, as, as, as much of a high wire act as a marriage for that to work. We need to believe that it's going to work, even though it, it might well not. Exactly. And in some ways, the canonical example of how this works in, in intimate relationships are in relationships between parents and children. 
it turns out that when parents have children, and, and as a parent, I can tell you this happened to me, you know, you feel like when your child is born that something truly miraculous and extraordinary has happened. And I would say that I was, you know, I, I didn't think that I would be a particularly engaged parent before I became a parent, but the moment I became a parent, this became the single most important thing in my life. And, and the, the joy and pleasure and delight I took in my daughter's accomplishments when she was a toddler, you know, you know I, I had diary entries about the time she learned important words, and these were important to me that she was sort of, you know, hitting all these milestones. But, but the delusional beliefs that parents have about their children, the fact that parents see their children as extraordinarily special and unique, you know, this is not because children in themselves are particularly special and unique, but it's because these delusional beliefs allow parents to invest the time and attention needed to be a good parent. Uh, it turns out that parenting is extraordinarily time-consuming and expensive and frustrating and irritating. And if we did not have delusional beliefs about our children, if we merely did a cost-benefit calculation about how difficult it was to be a parent and how, you know, the rewards that we would get, some of us might walk away from parenthood. And in the course of our evolutionary history, nature has realized that one of the things you want to do in, in order to engage parents in the, in the act of parenthood and to allow children to be raised successfully is to give parents delusional beliefs about their children. So the beliefs might not be real, but they're extraordinarily functional. We're talking today to Shankar Vedantam. He's the host of the Hidden Brain podcast, and his new book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Shankar Vedantam. His new book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Shankar, you do a, you make a good case here for these self-delusions. And part of what I found so interesting about this book is you weren't just telling us why delusions are good, but you explained why we've evolved to have them. And, and one idea I found so interesting was an idea from Sigmund Freud, one that has not been discredited. This is one that has to do with the city of Rome. What was mm -hmm. his idea with that? Well, Freud had many interesting ideas about the mind, and as you say, some of them have been challenged by modern psychology and neuroscience, but one of the very elegant ideas he had was that the mind was like the city of Rome. It's built in layers. And what Freud was trying to indicate by that is that new layers of the mind in some ways sit atop older systems in the mind. And what I've taken away from that and the way that I have applied that or, or the connection that I'm making to the book that I'm writing is that if you look at the process of natural selection, it's quite clear that we have systems in the brain that evolved many, many, many tens of millions of years before humans arrived on the planet. So the systems in the brain, for example, that regulate fear in our minds are highly conserved. In fact, they were they evolved many, many you know, species before humans first arrived, but they stayed in our minds because once evolution figures out how to run these, these systems in the brain, you know, why would you keep reinventing things? But there are systems in the mind that are also very new. Um, 
our capacity, for example, to anticipate what's happening in the future, for us, for example, to plan what, what's happening over the next hundred years, even when we might not be alive to see the full results of what's happening, these abilities to exercise logic and foresight, uh, you know, the hallmarks of scientific thinking, these are systems that we don't see widely across the rest of the animal world. And so in some ways, these are the newer buildings in, in the city of Rome that's in our mind. But in some ways, the book is trying to make the argument that both these systems in the mind coexist. We have systems that are very ancient and systems that are relatively modern. And some of the conflicts and tensions we see in the modern world, but in fact, be reflections of conflicts and tensions between these two different systems within the brain. Hmm. And you make the case that that some of the things that, that we love as a civilization that make no sense are tied back into this. I was, I was intrigued by what you wrote about ritual, that this is something that sort of appeals to that more ancient part of our brain. Give, it, give an example of that. Yeah, so I mean, a number of studies have found, for example, that, that people feel better about their lives when they have certain rituals. And in fact, when people are anxious, their, their bodily movements start to resemble ritualistic movements. They tend to be re repetitive movements, or you do the same things over again, or you try and do more things involving cleaning or cleansing behaviors of one kind or the other. Uh, people who are part of the a group that basically does the same thing together, if you're part of a rowing team, for example, and you're rowing with others, or you're part of a choir, and you're singing with others, or you're in a symphony that's producing music together, there's great satisfaction that we often derive from doing things in concert with other people at fixed points in time in sort of a ritualistic kind of fashion. And, and people have explored why it is these rituals are so popular around the world. You know, rituals by definition often have no purpose. They're actually not accomplishing anything. And yet all over the world, every culture in the world has rituals. And, and one of the theories that's been advanced is that rituals in some ways help us in some ways cope with the challenges of daily life. They give us systems to occupy our brains, but they also bind us to other people in ways that are truly important. Uh, in our evolutionary history, it turned out that one of the most important and valuable things that we could do in order to survive was to stick with the tribe because the tribe was a source of comfort. It was a source of security. And so there are algorithms in the human mind that bind us to one another. And it turns out that rituals are one of the powerful ways of doing exactly just that. Hmm. I want to go to the phone lines here. We have Janet, who's calling from Highland, Illinois. Uh, Janet, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Uh, Janet, are you here with us? Yes, I'm here. Uh, great. I'm here. I can hear you now. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there a benefit to uh, trauma ghosting? I don't. Uh, that term is a. It's new, fairly new to me. The physical response to a smell or to an event that's passed on from a child from a parent to a child, without the child having gone through the trauma uh, herself. There's there's a, a kind of a memory. Janet, thank you for that question. Shankar, um, does that ring a bell for you? I'm not sure I'm familiar with the term trauma ghosting, but I, I will say there has been some really interesting work looking at how you know, the experiences of one generation can be transmitted to the next generation, you know, and, and we all sort of see this anecdotally. Uh, you know, people whose parents grew up in the Great Depression, for example, long after the Great Depression had come and gone, their behaviors continue to be shaped by that traumatic experience, and then their children's behavior in turn are also shaped by how their parents behave. So again, this makes sense. If you think of our memories in some ways as being a device that helps us remember the past in order to cope with the future, it makes sense that the brain has various mechanisms in place in order to remember traumas, not just from our own lifetimes, but some ways from our parents' lifetimes or our ancestors' lifetimes in order to guide our own behavior in the here and now. Hmm. 
Thank you for that call, Janet. Uh, that's that's interesting. And one of the most interesting chapters in your book, Shankar, I thought, had to do with the theater of healing. You'd think that healthcare should be firmly within the realm of science and logic, yet you get into something called sham surgeries that, that kind of prove that wrong. How so? Yeah, so I think it is absolutely the case that science and medicine have produced enormous benefits in our lives. And if you had to choose between, you know, going to someone who has come up with a theory of something that will cure you in their basement and a peer-reviewed <laughs> study that has been approved by the FDA, you should definitely go with a peer-reviewed study that has been a- approved by the FDA. I- I'm glad but you're that- clarifying that. It feels like in this moment yeah. in our country, it might be good just exactly. to get that on the record. But yes, exactly. continue. <laughs> so I, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is not misinterpreted to mean that science and uh, science and law have no value. In fact, they have tremendous value. But it turns out that besides the benefits of peer-reviewed studies and medications that have been approved by the FDA, it is also the case that our own faith and trust in our healthcare providers plays a very important role in our well-being and our eventual being cured for various problems that we have. I think in many ways the healthcare system has been inadequately focused on the relationship between healthcare providers, between physicians and their patients, when in some ways going back many centuries now, the, the links between this faith and trust that we have in our doctors and good outcomes has been firmly established. Uh, as you mentioned in your question, Sarah, there have been research studies recently that have looked at the effects of the what's called the placebo effect, the belief that you're going to get better, that have looked at these placebo effects in the context of surgery, where you know you have one group of patients receiving the actual surgery and another group of patients that's receiving effectively sham surgery. The surgeon is just making incisions in the patient's skin, but beyond that, not carrying through the rest of the surgery. And some of these studies remarkably find that patients who receive the sham surgery have results that are remarkably good compared to patients who receive the actual surgery. (laughs) Again, my point here is not to suggest that actual surgery and actual medications have no value. It is to suggest that the relationship between doctor and patient, the rituals embedded in the practice of medicine, these are essential parts of the cure, not just something that's superfluous. Hmm. It's interesting. And it seems like we're all too quick to write off the placebo effect as, oh, this means it's bogus. You make the case, Mm -hmm. no, it's working. It's just working in a different way. Yes, and I think the placebo has often been used as a way to test the effectiveness of various uh, medications. So if a medication does not outperform a placebo in a clinical trial, we say the medication is worthless. Really what we should be saying is that the effect of the medication is limited to the placebo effect because Mm -hmm. I think a variety of studies suggest the placebo effect is far from worthless. I want to go back to the phone lines. John is calling from Shelbyville, Missouri. Uh, John, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Great, thank you. Yeah, I felt compelled to call because, um, first of all, I really enjoyed the sh- your show and, and uh, your guest uh, contributions. But um, my whole life—you're very welcome. My whole life seems to have fallen into um, teetering on self-deception. Hmm. Uh, I got out of grad school and couldn't get a job, and and uh, eventually started just to follow my heart and. Um, directed myself into art and teaching, and I do that now full-time, though I'm not at a specific location. I kind of am an art, uh, itinerant artist, and I find myself doing a lot of shows where I demonstrate my historic trade, which is paper marbling, which is a really strange profession, hmm. but I followed my heart there, and I, I'm often questioning, was that an adult decision? <laughs> was it uh, delusional to do such a strange uh, thing in my life, but I'm finding that I am reaching people, and 
I think I think I'm making a difference out there. Um, yeah, John, I, I, I got to say, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like this has worked out for you. If, if this was a delusional decision, it, it sounds like you're doing okay. Well, I wish my brother thought that. Um, <laughs> he often says, John, you, you have not made adult decisions. Hmm. Well, maybe not, but I am contributing in some way. And I financially, it's a little rough because, you know, what does a paper marbler do for a living? But, you know, but. But it's working. It's working. Well, um, Shankar, this seems like John's life is is somewhat of a testament to the useful delusion. Well, I think all of us in our daily lives uh, basically do some version of what John is saying that he does in his life, which is, you know, when events happen to us, many things happen to us that lie outside our control. And once they happen, what do we do? We come up with, in some ways, with explanations and stories that tell us that this is okay, that this is this is what we should be doing. And I'm not necessarily suggesting this is a problem. I'm actually suggesting that this is actually quite a healthy thing to do. Um, we can't control exactly what happens to us, what happens to us tomorrow. And we all need coping mechanisms in some ways to deal with the challenges and obstacles that are placed before us. And one of the things that our minds are designed to do, this is what the brain was designed to do, is it's designed to adapt us to the challenges that we face. Mm-hmm. And so so in every culture, in every country in the world, as people face obstacles and setbacks of various kinds, uh, healthy and normal people come up in some ways with coping mechanisms and explanations to justify what's happened to themselves. And in fact, if we didn't do that, we might actually end up worse. Um, there's a whole interesting body of research that suggests that people who in some ways don't come up with rationalizations, who don't come up with useful deceptions uh, and self-deceptions, these are people who are not healthier. These are actually people whom we term as having mental illnesses. These are people who are poorly adapted to the challenges and demands of daily life. Hmm. So maybe the moral of the story is uh, beyond reading this book and getting the full, uh, you know, the full subtle take on all this, not trying to distill it down into a single sentence here. But it sounds like delusions can be useful. You just don't want to start sending thousands of dollars to the fictitious woman who is, is catfishing you. I think that's right. And I think that the line between what is a useful delusion and a dangerous delusion is a thin line. And I think that's the that's the realization I came I came to after understanding Joseph Enriquez's story in greater depth. Uh, it is the case that I would not have done what he did. But after listening to his story and understanding it, I sort of understand where he's coming from. And I also understand the value that the story had in his life. And then when I start to think about my own life, I come up with, I see in all kinds of ways, the ways that I have told my stories that justify to myself the choices that I have made, I can see why in some ways that those choices, in fact, can be healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, Shankar Vedantam, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and also for this just really interesting book. Um, I, I learned a lot from it, so thank you. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.